0: It's good to see so many of you here. In fact, I suspect there are more of you here than have practically ever been here before, which is of no surprise considering our speaker. To go through the litany, yet still once again, for those of you who are regulars here, Thursday of this week, Judith Krug the director of the Office of Intellectual Freedom of the American Library Association staff liaison with the Intellectual Freedom Committee, will be speaking in this room uh, at 6 o'clock this Thursday. What will there be left to censor in 1984? On Monday, November 23, 6 p.m., this room, Madeline Stern on a mid-19th century American literary publishing, particularly appropriate in conjunction with this evening's speech. On Monday, December 30, 6 p.m., Michael Gullick speaking on 12th century handwriting. On Monday, December seventh, Lottie Hellinger of the British Library on the unimportance of 15th century English printing. And then finally, on Wednesday, December 9, the annual Book Arts Press Christmas party. The films, I'm happy to say, have arrived, all 1,000 and $15 of them. Uh, a four-part history of handwriting produced by the Parker Pen Company and uh, featuring the uh, handwriting of Donald Jackson and the narration of Susanna York. Very slick, these four films. I've not seen them yet myself, but I've talked to no one who is not wildly enthusiastic about them. So that is the fall lineup for the Friends of the Book Arts Press, but it is entirely unnecessary for me to say that the highlight of the fall season is Mr. Rollo-Silver, who will be speaking tonight on the Power of the Press. It's a very great pleasure indeed to welcome someone who has been here many times before, but not as often recently as he should have been. Mr. Rollo-Silver.
1: Thank you very much. It is always a pleasure to talk to Bellinger's bookies. (laughs) One of the greatest problems of our contemporary world is the search for energy. It is of course not a new problem, and this evening I will tell you about the 19th century American printer's search for energy. Believe it or not, the history of printing can be relevant. Although the development of the power press marks an advance in the history of American printing, information about the specific power actually employed by printers can only be found in scattered archives and references. During the first half of the 19th century, printers chose from available power sources the most reliable and cost effective. The advent of steam did not immediately eliminate all other power. Indeed, in this period, even large power presses were run by hand, horse, and water, as well as by steam. Inventors of the earliest power presses believed that printers should not be restricted to a single form of energy. Publicity for the cylinder press, invented by Thomas B. Waite and John P. Sorwin, which was patented on 28th of January, 1811, boasted of its versatility. According to the publicity, the blacking of the types and the printing are performed by cylinders, which with a tympan and frisket are all operated on machinery to which motion may be given by a horse, by steam, or by water. The same power can work several presses. Unhappily, Although the power supply was adequate, the press failed. Thirty-six years later, the judges, at an exhibition of the Massachusetts Charitable Mechanics Association, writing about composition rollers, used the failure of Waite and Sarwin to illustrate how far rollers had advanced the industry. They said, Everything worked well, excepting the inking apparatus. This consisted of rollers, which were cylinders, covered with wash leather or cloth. They would not distribute the ink evenly, and every page had its monks and friars in abundance. Alas, this press came into existence a few years before its time. Composition rollers would have saved it, but composition rollers were not then among the things that are. When Daniel Treadwell constructed the first successful power press in America in 1821, steam engines were not yet readily available in Boston. Therefore, power for his press was supplied by a horse working a circular path in the basement while hitched to a lever on the vertical driving shaft which extended to the press on the floor above. Soon, an unforeseen difficulty arose. The horse, which received a shock when an impression was made on this massive and complicated press, began to halt as he approached the moment of he feared. <laughs> Thereafter, a driver with a whip accompanied him around the track. Even so, the horse tired so much that a second horse served as a relay. In 1822, Treadwell built a second press which used the same horse that operated the first, with the impressions on each press made alternately. In order to demonstrate the merit of his press, Treadwell set up his own printing shop on Battery March Street in Boston, and the books, as well as the Boston Journal of Philosophy and the Arts, which he turned out on his two presses, were convincing to potential customers. Almost immediately, He sold presses and the patent right to use these presses in a designated area. Ralph Green estimated that probably as many as 50 Treadwell presses had been built before 1830, the time when more efficient presses began to appear on the market. Now, during its eight years of tenure as America's leading power press, all four kinds of power were applied to it. When, in 1822, T. H. Carter and Nathan Hale, both of Boston, purchased Treadwell's printing shop and the patent right for the press in Massachusetts, Carter moved Treadwell's two presses to his own establishment and added two more. Carter's four presses, originally run by horsepower, later by steam, eventually came into the possession of the Battleboro Typographic Company in Vermont where in 1843 they were offered for sale, fitted up to print by water or steam power. Earlier, Carter and Hale had set up four jointly owned Treadwell presses on the mill dam which they ran on water power. These four, unsuccessfully offered for sale in 1836, went in the main for old junk. Hale also had four presses of his own, About 1827, he printed the Boston Daily Advertiser by hand power, making his press the first Treadwell to be used for newspaper work. In 1828, he bought a second press and at that time converted to steam, and fire destroyed his four presses in 1825. Printers outside of Boston also used steam power when available for the Treadwell presses. Daniel Fanshawe at the American Tract Society in New York had four steam-powered treadwells in 1826 and 22 in 1836. Gales and Seton, Washington, D.C., used steam for their four treadwells in 1828. However, when Isaac Ashmead of Philadelphia acquired his first treadwell in 1827, he used a horse and continued to use horses until upgrading to steam when he purchased his eighth treadwell. The treadwell purchased by the Harper Brothers of New York about 1828 was run by a horse until superseded by a steam-powered press in 1833. Two incidents to melt the heart are characteristic of the times. On the day when John Farrington, Harper's chief foreman, learned that the firm had decided to use steam power presses, he went home in the evening, and I quote, dropped into the first chair he came to and actually wept, end quote. And X-Men tells what happened when the horse was retired to Father Harper's farm on Long Island. For a while, he frolicked around the pasture, enjoying his new freedom. Then old habits asserted themselves. When a seven o'clock whistle blew, he emerged from the barn, went to a solitary tree in the pasture, and walked steadily around it till the twelve o'clock whistle told him he might rest till one. When again he took up a solitary and circular tramp till the six o'clock whistle released him for the night. Horses or water impelled another press, which appeared six years after Treadwell's. In this one, invented by Benjamin Metcalf of Woodstock, Vermont, the entire process of printing was performed by the application of water or horsepower to the principal wheel with the exception of putting the sheets upon the tympan and taking them off, which was done by hand. It could print about 400 sheets per hour as compared with 500 or 600 on a treadwell. And the price was about $500, about half of that of a treadwell. According to the historian of Woodstock, Mr. Metcalf was successful in disposing of several specimens of his press and it remained in use here and elsewhere for some time. Noam Pascal, using second-hand stereotype plates, printed a quarto edition of the Bible on a Metcalf press in Woodstock in 1828. Since his premises were on the upper floor of a building at a dam with a water wheel below a shop, it is probable that water supplied the power. There is a likelihood that Simeonide of windsor Vermont owned Metcalf presses about 1828. He used horses for energy at first, but when they could not tread fast enough to suit him, he decided to use water power and moved his presses to an old woolen factory on the second fall away from the Connecticut River on Millbrook. This proved to be poor judgment, as Millbrook sometimes had a deficient water supply. Investors built a new dam farther upstream, but would not grant Ide a mill site and water privilege. After further misfortunes in Windsor, Ide gave up and moved to Claremont, New Hampshire in 1834. He must have been delighted to learn that the new dam he had not been allowed to share was hopeless. Water couldn't be retained, it leaked through subterranean passages. Sporadic use of water power continued into the later decades. E.P. Walton and Sons of Montpelier, Vermont, used water power for their new Adams press in 1840. In the next year, at Cincinnati, Ohio, the water in the Miami Canal energized Ephraim Morgan's five presses. In furtherance of the search for energy, one particularly ingenious contrivance was devised to capture the power of flowing water for running a printing press. In 1850, the Boston Evening Traveler purchased a four impression cylinder hoe type revolving press. At that time, water was piped into Boston from a reservoir, the Kachichowat Waterworks, and Samuel Hughes, the assistant superintendent of the waterworks, had just invented a water meter containing a water wheel. The traveler piped water through the meter placed next to the press, so that the water wheel in the meter would supply the power to run the traveler press. And here's a contemporary description published in England. The printing press of a daily paper in Boston, United States, is driven in a manner of which there is no example in any other city in the Republic. Through a two-inch lead pipe, a stream of Cachetuate water is introduced into a meter which only occupies twenty-four square inches. The fall of water between the Boston Reservoir and this meter is about hundred feet. This two-inch stream will discharge eighty gallons of water each minute and, in passing through the meter, will give a motive power equal to what is called three horsepower. This is more than sufficient for driving the press. It is less hazardous than a steam engine, requires no attention, and is always in readiness. This project mounted up to a heavier cost than is apparent in the article. The traveler plant had to be moved to a building large enough to accommodate the new press, and the hose had to send a press erector from the New York office to supervise installation. In February 1850, when he activated the press, the meter functioned only as luck would have it. Reporting back to New York, the press erector wrote, I do not think much of the water power, for one day it will give me as high as 28, and the next probably I cannot get more than 17 revolutions per minute. I do not care to run more than 30, but you'd like to have that much at least, and Mr. Hughes has been promising to give me that many turns for some time, but I have not seen it yet. As far as I am concerned, I have got a first-rate set of feeders, and they behave first-rate, and everything works well as I could wish. I have not had the least bit of trouble with a press. Ultimately, the water meter improved, so that within a year the traveler printed a four-column cut of the press and its water meter, and I've brought along some Xeroxes, which I'll pass around, of the press and the little water meter on the side, which ran this printing press in 1851. And yeah. the accompanying article... Uh, which was printed without illustration. There's one feisty paragraph which illustrates how tough a successful newspaper publisher had to be to survive the challenge of a growing public eager for newsprint. This is the paragraph. It is not yet quite six years since we issued the first number of the Daily Evening Traveler. At that time, an old power press, turned by hand, and capable of giving about 700 impressions an hour, was deemed quite sufficient for all of our wants. For some time, we were able to print on that machine not only our own papers, daily, semi-weekly, and weekly, but even one or two weekly papers for our neighbors. But, after a few months, the increase of our subscription list made it necessary to procure another power press somewhat more rapid than the old by means of which we could get twelve or 1,400 impressions per hour. It soon became necessary, however, to substitute steam power for hand power in propelling this machine. A short experience satisfied us that this press would not do the work which the favor of the public required of us, and a single-cylinder Napier press was obtained which would give from 2,500 to 3,000 impressions an hour. This answered our purpose for about a year, when necessity compelled us to procure a double Napier press, which would give about 5,000 impressions the hour. But we have now learned that even this beautiful machine cannot do the work seasonably of printing our large and constantly increasing editions. We have therefore been compelled to submit to the very heavy expense of procuring one of Ho's celebrated, type-revolving, fast printing presses, which is in that illustration, and removing to a new office where this machine could be put up and where other facilities for conducting business could be secured, End quote. The traveler probably used water power for less than a decade. At the time of the 1857 panic, it had in its inventory a 10-impression cylinder hoe press which required much more power and the firm had then The firm had previously used steam for an earlier press. The one certainty in this episode is that resources were not squandered. What would those pioneers have thought of the enormous waste of water rushing out of our skyscrapers? They would have wondered why our engineers do not capture this source of power in our time of energy crisis. Contrary to what is often believed, the horse remained a source of energy for the American printer into the second half of the 19th century. About 1840, at Concord, New Hampshire, Luther Robey struck off his popular Bibles and other matter on a press for which power was obtained from a large wheel worked by a horse in the basement of his press room. His daughter remembered that when she visited the office as a child, she was placed on the back of the horse to enjoy the ride. In 1851, the Christian Advocate, a Methodist periodical in Nashville, purchased what it declared to be one of the most superior printing machines in the valley of the Mississippi. That press was powered by an old blind gray horse stabled in the basement. And it has been said that when Joseph Medill Medill published the Chicago Tribune in 1855, the power for its Adams Press was supplied by a shaggy Canadian pony that went round and round like the horse of a sorghum mill in a lot outside the editorial office. In their search for energy, some American printers found that a useful item was already being manufactured for an entirely different industry. The agricultural machinery firm of Wheeler-Mellick and Company in Albany, New York, produced and nationally marketed such implements as threshers, sawmills, clover hullers, feed cutters, and horsepowers. Now, horsepowers as manufactured by Wheeler-Mellick and others, enabled a farmer to use his horse or horses as a power source for machines in the field for threshing, sawing wood, and, as a catalog stated, driving nearly every kind of machine farmers use. They were a simple but clever contrivance. A single horsepower compli- comprised a portable stall about 10 feet by 2 feet with a treadmill on the bottom. A double horsepower had the same length but its 5 foot width permitted the use of two horses. Bandwheels wheels, four and a half feet in diameter fitted to either side made about 148 revolutions per minute when the horses walked at the rate of 2 miles per hour a velocity sufficient to drive farm machinery with two wheels on the front end, the horsepower could be easily moved from place to place on the farm. In 1854, Wheeler-Mellick stated that they were selling a 1,000 horsepowers in a season. Well, a number of printers found an answer to their quest for energy in these machines. During the 1850s, The Prairie Farmer, an agricultural journal in Detroit, was printed for several years on a press driven by a Wheeler Mellick horsepower. In 1853, the Missouri Statesman of Columbia reported that a thousand copies an hour could issue from its press propelled by a Wheeler Mellick horsepower. Unfortunately, I found no prints of horsepower's driving presses, but in the Wheeler Mellick catalog, there is a picture of a two-horsepower press. You know, that's this around Printers facing an emergency could fall back on horsepowers as did Sterling Campbell and Albright of Greensboro, North Carolina. Soon after the Civil War began, this firm had decided to bring out a series of school books, which uh, would include a defense of slavery. Well, as the exigency of war allowed few books to be printed in the South, a good sale was assured, uh, but they'd had a hard time uh, printing these books. The annals of Greensboro include a reference to the circumstances. In February 1862, the firm purchased an Adams Book Press in Columbia, South Carolina. No engine could be had to run the Adams Press, and a horsepower made by A.P. Bourne near Pomona for running cane mills and threshing machines was purchased and placed in position in the rear of the printing office. A horse was purchased... G. F. Thomas, now one of Greensboro's leading job printers, was a lad and acted as motorman. The demand was high as had been foreseen. The press was satisfactory, and it wasn't the press that was at fault, but paper became in short supply in the South during the Civil War, and some of the books had to be printed in England after all. Those plotting animals moving daily around a track or on a treadmill so that Americans could fulfill a desire to read and learn, should be among those horses of the Stephen Vincent Benet poem. Horses that were remembered after death and buried not so far from Christian ground. Now, invention of the stationary steam engine introduced a uniquely different form of energy. Previously, you see, the source of energy it had always been seen and touched in machines run by hand, horse, or water. But steam power might be piped from another building and at fairly long distances. It was, as one writer described it, invisible power. For the first time, they had, the people had power they couldn't see. And today it's difficult for us to realize how slowly... New inventions evolved at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. The first steam engine in America was placed in operation in a copper mine near Passaic, New Jersey, in March 1755. One in New York and one in Rhode Island were the only other steam engines erected in America before the end of the Revolutionary Period. They were, in fact, hardly required. As they were expensive and at that time served only to pump water. Expansion into other kinds of use awaited an increase in population with its need for greater and more sufficient power and efficient power. By 1838, more than three-quarters of a century after that first use of steam in an American copper mine, it became economical to set up steam engines in factories As Purcell, the author of The History of the Steam in America, states, steam was used in every conceivable type of manufacture, from printing press to gunpowder mills. Therefore, it is to be expected that many years would pass between the time when steam was first used for printing and the time when steam for printing was accepted as a sound practice. Until contradictory evidence turns up, credit for the first use of steam for printing in America should be given to Jonas Booth of New York who was born in England in the later years of the 18th century. He emigrated about 1822 bringing with him memories of the power presses he had seen in his native land then further advanced than ours were. Not long after he arrived he built or designed his own press. In 1823, Niles Weekly Register printed this announcement. A New York paper says, An edition of the abridgment of Murray's English grammar has been published by Messrs. Collins and Company of New York at the steam printing press of Mr. Jonas Booth. It is well executed and being the first work ever executed at a press of that description in the United States. It is worthy of the public attention as furnishing evidence of the progress of the arts amongst us. End quote. It is known that Booth and his four sons received a patent on September 1, 1829 for an improvement in the construction and operation of a printing press called Booth's Improved Double Printing Press. This implies that it was a double feeder with one type form and a frisket frame at each end of the press. Booth's progressive acceptance of steam likely interested his fellow printers, but in general, in fear of unhappy consequences, they hesitated to follow his example. It will be remembered that Daniel Fanshaw had four steam-powered press treadwells in 1826, that Gales and Seaton had four in 1828, but that the Harpers, resisted steam until 1833, a decade after Booth. As late as 1837, the Harpers had 24 hand presses still in use. Although newspapers required much more rapid production than books, it took until 1835 for Benjamin Day to print the New York Sun by steam. And his reasoning, he said, was that the Sun at that time was the only daily newspaper of large circulation, so it seemed to be the only establishment where steam was really indispensable. Printers had good reason to be apprehensive of this new form of energy. If incorrectly used, it became dangerous, with resulting loss of life and property. So many accidents did occur that in June 1838, the House of Representatives passed a report information about loss of life or property. His report, a volume of almost 500 pages, contains much information about steamboat engines and steamboat disasters, as well as an inventory of the steam engines in the United States. Now, the inventory seems to be about as accurate as the census of 1980. There is fairly complete information about some cities, less about others, including New York. Despite its deficiencies, the report lists some of the printers using steam in 1838. Ten firms were located in Philadelphia, two in Washington, D.C., and one each in Hartford and Pittsburgh. The two firms in the Boston area are especially interesting because their steam engines were built by men who also built printing presses. The engine for the Morning Post of Boston had just been built by Otis Tufts, and the engine for Folsom Wells and Thurston of Cambridge was built by Isaac and Seth Adams in the previous year. A number of clues to the literature of printing further verifies the gradualism in the acceptance of STEAM. It was first used in Maine in 1839 when Oliver L. Sanborn of Portland connected his Adams Press by a shaft to the engine in the machine shop situated in an adjoining building. Seven years later, the Scientific American in New York remarked that printing by steam is an operation of much curiosity and should be seen by all visiting the city. Four years after that, On the 4th of July, 1850, steam for printing crossed the country. It was used for the first time in California. A proprietor of a small shop, you see, had to be a courageous as well as an enterprising man to want to buy a steam engine. He had to be on guard against the unforeseen, explosions, and the irrational behavior, or so it seemed to him, of strange forces driven by new techniques. Safety was a worry, but most of all, perhaps, he worried about his ability to keep production and his business above water in every way. William Dean Howells, who worked in his father's country printing shop in the 1840s, remembered the conversion from hand power to steam after a second-hand Adams Press was purchased. This is what Howells said. It finally made so great a draft upon our forces that it was decided to substitute steam for muscle in its operation. And we got a small engine, which could fully sympathize with the press in having seen better days. I do not know that there was anything the matter with the engine itself, but the boiler had some peculiarities which might well mystify the casual spectator. He could have easily have satisfied himself that there was no danger of its blowing up when he saw my brother feeding bran or cornmeal into its safety valve in order to fill up certain seams or fissures in it, which caused it to give out at the moments of the greatest reluctance in the press. But still, he must have had his misgivings of latent danger of some other kind, though nothing ever happened of a hurtful character. To this day, I do not know just where those seams or fissures were, but I think they were in the boilerhead and that it was therefore suffering from a kind of chronic fracture of the skull. What is certain is that somehow the engine in the press did always get us through publication day, and not only with safety, but often with credit. Within a printing shop, there were dichotomous opinions about the power press when it became available. The master printer approved it, as a more productive and efficient machine. On the other hand, the journeymen found it a threat to their jobs. For, trained during their apprenticeship to perform every specific task, they realized that they would soon be outdistanced by the new techniques, and moreover, fewer pressmen would be needed. As early as 1833, the introduction to the Constitution of the New York Typographical Association poignantly described the sentiments of the journeyman. The trade also, as far as pressmen are concerned, had suffered extremely by the applications of machinery to that branch of the business. And while a few individuals were growing rich, as they asserted, for the benefit of the public at large, many who had spent from five to seven years Of the flower of their lives in acquiring a knowledge of their profession were left without employment or were obliged to resort to some business with which they were unacquainted and thus constrained to serve a sort of second apprenticeship. Two years later, the Columbia Typographical Society in Washington considered one possible defensive action, resolved that a committee be appointed to inquire into the expediency of making such alterations in the price of press work and the introduction of rollers and roller boys, as will enable employers to have their work done as cheap, better, and with greater certainty by hand than by the use of steam or power presses, while at the same time pressmen will be able to make as good wages, if not better, than under the present system." This, it may be noted, was only one skirmish in the battle against the machine. Similar fruitless attempts to avoid mechanization by reducing costs were, in later years, proposed by other unions. The glass workers' unions and the coal miners' unions suggested a reduction in wages, whereas the printers advocated the introduction of boys, a method they had previously opposed when employers wanted to apply it to typesetting. As the number of mechanized presses increased, the rift between compositors and pressmen widened. By 1850, membership of the New York Typographical Union comprised 1,000 compositors, but only 200 pressmen. The majority of the 1856 Convention of the National Typographical Union decided that if Operating a power press was all a man knew about the trade. He would scarcely be considered a printer and his exclusion would be very proper. Two years later, the convention reversed itself, voting that pressmen were printers. Nevertheless, dissension continued. In 1889, the Adams and Cylinder Press Printers Association, which had been organized in 1865, called a conference res- which resulted in the founding of the International Printing Pressmen's Union of North America. The vocations of compositor and pressman were at last formally established as two different occupations. Use of hand power for machine presses did not decline as rapidly as might be thought. In 1825, the power for the first Napier Press was supplied by one man, or, in case of a long operation, two to relieve each other. As late as 1942, Ralph Green knew of at least two newspapers still being printed on hand presses. Within this span, a surge in the production of hand-powered machine presses occurred after 1850. These were the presses primarily intended for the numerous proprietors of country newspapers. McNamara described the demands of those men. The country printer is seldom a banker, and consequently is short of funds. The more he is forced to invest in a press, the less he has left for type, therefore the press must be cheap. As he is more of a politician than a mechanic, it must be simple, have few parts, and not liable to derangement. He may be an able writer, but a weak pressman. Hence, the machine must be capable of doing good work with little or no help from him. The press may be placed in the top story of a frame building, and the lower floors become vacant if it is noisy or cause undue vibration. And under all these conditions, it must be durable and saleable at all times and capable of any class of work," end quote. A complete history of country newspaper presses (laughs) is beyond the scope of this article. Be that as it may, a brief overview will suffice to show that the major press manufacturers pursued this market. Joel G. Northrup of Cortlandville, New York, who had patented a hand or steam power cylinder or patent patent press in 1842, brought out an improved press and displayed it in New York City in 1851, but it arrived too late to be entered into the contest for George Bruce's premium of $1,000 for the best low-cost country printing press. Undaunted, Northrop organized a manufacturing company which sold about 200 such presses in three years. In 1852, Charles Montague of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, patented a cylinder press which could be worked by hand or by steam. A later Montague Press became the well-known Acme newspaper and job press, still being manufactured in the 1890s and considered worthy of illustration in both Ringwald and the American Dictionary of Printing and Bookmaking. The hand or steam power country press, invented in 1856, by A.B. Newbury of Wyndham Center, was largely used for many years. In 1860, two other manufacturers introduced their presses. A.B. Taylor & Company's New Country Newspaper Large Printing Press, so correctly balanced that, quote, a boy of 16 can readily and easily turn the crank, end quote, was excellent, yet it never achieved great popularity. Taylor, who learned his craft while working for Ho, had his own employee, Andrew Campbell, leave in the same fashion to start his own business. In 1860, Campbell announced a country newspaper, country newspaper press, which also could be operated by a boy turning a crank. It was a very popular press, improved constantly and from time to time, and by 1885, over 2,000 were in use as would be expected the House of Ho also entered the competition by offering two country newspaper presses which could be run by hand the country press as well as the railway printing newspaper printing machine were still available from Ho in 1885 although one had been introduced in 1858 and the other in 1862 and here is a picture of one of the new hand power large cylinder printing presses. Now, this is one of the so-called power presses but <laughs> just made uh, for running by hand. Even as the century turned, hand power for machine presses remained a normal option, particularly for country printers. While hand, horse, water, and steam were driving the presses, a more sophisticated form of energy germinated. That story began when, on the 13th of December, 1839, Thomas Stavenport, the Brandon blacksmith, wrote from New York that he was driving a rotary printing press with a machine weighing less than a hundred pounds. In the next month, he published the first issue of the newspaper called The Electromagnet. It was, and I quote from the masthead, printed on a press propelled by electromagnetism. End quote. Or, as we say, electricity.
0: But that's another story. Thank you.